Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of All My Movies. And first and foremost, I want to say thank you to everybody who was so amazing in the response to last week's episode on The Dark Knight, which was our debut episode. I've been wanting to do this show for such a long time, and to see a response that was so positive and enthusiastic from last week, I really appreciate everybody who took the time. I hope that you will remain as positive about the show as we keep going. And also, don't forget, if you check the descriptions down below, there is a merch store where you can find limited edition, and this is only going to be available for a very short time, goat merchandise. That's greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, goat merchandise. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the goat. I'm just saying whoever you think the goat is, you can now sport a shirt or a hat or a pullover or whatever you want uh, with that logo on it. I don't think I could wear it. I think that would be a little bit egotistical for me to wear it, but I hope that you would like to wear it. Uh, But keep in mind, as I said last week, if you want to wear it and say that you're the GOAT, there's going to be a few people at the Schmodown that are going to say that you need to get into the ring and prove it. I would be one of them, and I think that there would be a few others. So don't forget to grab that while it's available because it's some really cool stuff only for a limited time. And also, please, if you didn't already, uh, head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show. It really does help us get on our feet as we're up and running. Uh, there was already a great response last week, so uh, if you would, if you haven't done that yet, I would really appreciate that as well. So let's move on to this week's movie, which is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It is one half of this Blu-ray that you see right here in front of me. I'll get to that in a little while. Uh, this is one of the, my favorite movies from my childhood, and it's something that I have literally grown up with. And it's also something that I'm excited to talk about with my guest today, Alex Winter, who plays Bill S. Preston Esquire in not only these two films, but Bill and Ted Face the Music, which is available now on demand, is also in select theaters if there's a theater near you that's open and is playing it. Uh, It's so crazy to me that I could get a guest like that this early in the show's run. So uh, we will talk to Alex about all things Bill and Ted in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to give you a little background information on where this movie came from when I first saw it, and also how it grew beyond just a teenage comedy to a real cultural phenomenon. Bill and Ted initially came from the minds of Chris and Ed. That's Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, the screenwriters behind the film. And the title characters were actually based on two characters that they played on stage during college. They actually did sort of comedy routines. What they would do is they would be Bill and Ted on stage. They would really have nothing written. And they would just invite questions from uh, the audience that would have to do with whatever, and they would answer it as Bill and Ted. And if you want to know what a version of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure would look like starring Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, just take a look at the two waiters during the Ziggy Piggy, Ziggy Piggy sequence, because those two waiters are the movie's two screenwriters. The Ziggy Pig, the single greatest ice cream spectacle known to man. Eat the pig, eat the pig. Ziggy, 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 zig. Now, early drafts of the film had Bill and Ted cruising through time in their own van. However, after the runaway success of Back to the Future, that element was switched out for the phone booth that we see in the film today. Earlier drafts of the screenplay also had Bill and Ted going back in time and getting Hitler, bringing him back to the 1980s and leaving him with Ted's brother Deacon. However, for obvious reasons, that character was swapped out for Napoleon. I agree with that, too. I don't know if I would necessarily find the humor in Hitler going down a water slide. 
Now, in hindsight, we know that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was a big hit, but when the screenwriting duo were originally shopping their idea around town, it turns out it was hard to convince a lot of studio execs, most of them older, that the movie would actually speak to the youth of America. The executives would say, nobody talks like this. And I kept scratching my head going, do you have kids? <laughs> I mean, do you go to the mall? I mean, they, they're running around like this, you know, I mean, it's to, to this day. I mean, it's even gotten, you know, e even worse. The movie actually found its funding from a really unlikely source, Dino De Laurentiis and his new company, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. Now, if you don't know Dino De Laurentiis, he is a legendary producer who produced dozens upon dozens upon dozens of films. And when you look at the filmmakers that he has worked with, it, it's like a film student's first year primer for the great directors of all time. We're talking Ingmar Bergman, Fellini, De Sica, John Huston, Robert Altman, William Friedkin. The list goes on and on. He he came into the 80s with this sterling career of producing some of the most important films ever made from some of the most important filmmakers ever made. And that's probably why in 1986, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, or DEG, was able to raise over $200 million to mount its own productions. And when you look at the movies that DEG put out in the 1980s, they are really some big movies, at least as far as reputation goes. We're talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger's Raw Deal, Michael Mann's Manhunter, the first on-screen appearance of Hannibal Lecter, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, and Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2. And while those films are legendary, as is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in its own way, it wasn't enough to keep the company out of trouble, but that's something we'll talk about a little bit later. With a script in place and funding in place, the search now turned towards finding the right actors to play Bill and Ted. Because honestly, if you don't get the right Bill and Ted, none of this matters. Luckily, the film was able to find the perfect leads in Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. For you, dudes! No way! No way! Yes way, Ted! We know how you feel! We didn't believe it when we were you, and we us, and we are saying right now! <laughs> Alex Winter was already an acting veteran by the time Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure rolled around. He'd been acting on stage and on screen and on television since he was a kid. And recently, before the movie started, had had a very prominent role in Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. Keanu Reeves was also a rising star. He had credits from River's Edge and Dangerous Liaisons, among other films on his resume before Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure came out, and then of course would go on to explode many years after the movie. To play the role of Rufus, the time-traveling advisor to the teenage duo, the producers of the film suggested comedian George Carlin, with whom they had just worked on the film Outrageous Fortune. And E Street saxophonist, the late, the big man, Clarence Clemens was cast as one of the three most important people in the world, along with Fee Waybill of the Tubes and Martha Davis of the Motels. You know, I actually didn't know that was Clarence Clemens until years after I saw the movie. I just love the E Street Band. What can I say? Principal photography for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure took place in 1987, but you're not really seeing San Dimas, California through most of the movie. As a matter of fact, Arizona was used to double for San Dimas, except for some establishing shots. Italy was also used for a couple of weeks of additional shooting for some of the sequences that take place in the past, including England and the Socrates introduction. Another early tool that the filmmakers used was early CGI, which was in place for the Circuits of Time sequences. 
All of these actors, elements, and locations were pulled together by director Stephen Herrick, who had already found cult success as the co-writer and director of 1986's Critters. After photography wrapped, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure moved to the editing room, where a lot of films are made or broken. But it turns out that DEG itself was in the process of being broken. Despite some high-profile hits, the company had had too many even bigger misses, and its financial solvency was in crisis even as the film was in the middle of post-production. It seemed for a little while like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was going to get lost in the sands of time. You know, I mean, you'd be cutting and they'd be hauling this stuff out because they could not pay for it anymore. I mean, we were going to go straight to videotape. I got a call saying, you're not, we're not getting released, it's going to go straight to videotape, and it's done. Following DEG's bankruptcy, the film was shopped to different places, and there wasn't a whole lot of interest until the film was test screened at malls around the country and shown to its target audience, mostly teenagers. And based on those results, Nelson Entertainment and Orion Pictures teamed up to buy the distribution rights to the film. And while the theatrical cut of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was rescued, according to many sources, there is over an hour of deleted footage that didn't make the film that's likely gone forever. Due to the delays with DEG's bankruptcy issues, the planned theatrical release for Bill and Ted in 1988 did not happen. However, as 1989 approached, the movie was officially headed to theaters. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. Put them in the iron maiden. Excellent! Execute You know, in hindsight, because it's a movie that's endured for so long, there's just this assumption that everybody loved Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure when it came out. And if you were to go to Rotten Tomatoes now, the reviews are overwhelmingly positive. But that's because a lot of those reviews have been added in the decades since the movie came out, as a generation of fans have grown up to be critics and written their own reviews of the film. In reality, when the film came out, particularly amongst the larger newspapers and established critics, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was not so positively received. In the LA Times, critic Chris Wellman asked, Are we in hell yet, dudes? Make no mistake, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is not a satire of mindlessness. It's unabashed glorification of dumbness for dumbness sake. The New York Times wrote, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which opens today, is meant to be funny but it only swells the sinus passages. It is a painfully inept comedy. And critic Hal Henson at the Washington Post wrote, if the director Stephen Herrick has any talent for comedy, it's not visible here. More than anything, the picture looks paltry and undernourished. Even the warts on Lincoln's face look slapped on. Heinous. Even film critic Gene Siskel, one half of Siskel and Ebert, couldn't help but take retroactive pot shots at the movie during his mixed review for the sequel, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. It is more inventive than, than the first one, for uh -huh. sure. The first one was just trashing these, uh, you know, sort of intellectual picture, trashing all these famous people. Even though many major critics looked down their nose at Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the audience disagreed. On February 17, 1989, after a long and sometimes bogus journey, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure hit theaters nationwide. The film actually placed third in its opening weekend behind the number one movie, The Burbs, directed by Joe Dante, and Rain Man, which was on its way to a Best Picture Academy Award. Despite never hitting the number one spot at the domestic box office, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure ended up grossing over $40 million, about four times its initial $10 million budget. And remember when I was talking about The Burbs, which nearly doubled Bill and Ted's opening weekend? 
it actually ended with a lower domestic box office gross at $36 million. A lot of the business was word of mouth and repeat business from younger audiences, and the marketing team for the film smartly knew who they should be targeting with their advertising. And it was as a young audience member that I found Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, although probably a little bit younger than even the marketing team was going for. I saw this movie when I was six or seven years old. It was definitely before the release of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and long enough before that I couldn't wait for that movie to come out. I saw it for the first time, as best I can recall, at my friend Justin's house on VHS, and it had to have been one of the original runs of Bill and Ted on VHS, because I still remember the limited time 900 number trivia game that was attached to every VHS copy of Bill and Ted. It's so easy to play, it's almost pathetic. Just dial 1-900-988-DUDE from any touchstone phone, but before you do... Ask your parents' permission. And it became very obvious that kids like I was at the time were a huge component of the future of the Bill and Ted franchise because seemingly overnight, a cottage industry of Bill and Ted kids stuff was everywhere. There were two animated shows, the first of which, which debuted in 1990, featured the original cast reprising their roles. Rufus, what are you doing in the here and now? I just dropped by from the 27th century to deliver your new Circuits of Time phone book. Excellent! There was also a short-lived Fox live-action show featuring none of the original cast, which was not excellent. But gentlemen, you're the great ones. Adversity is your middle name. But how do you stop a TV dude from becoming a bear? In addition to that, you had action figures. Now a drums, that bodacious barbarian Genghis Khan! Yeah, our new pal from old China. Excellent! Play-Doh. Now get Bill and Ted's Fun Kit free. Excellent! Cool games! Bill and Ted's photo! Of course, the obligatory breakfast cereal. We've got a most excellent way to start your day. Or night. Bill and Ted's excellent cereal. Cinnamon oats with marshmallow notes. It's the most triumphant part of this complete breakfast. And the true mark of cultural success in the late 80s and early 90s, an NES game. All that stuff aside, and I had all of that stuff and loved all that stuff when I was a kid, when I think about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, what I love the most about it is that it speaks to people on so many different levels. And it's something that I'm going to talk to Alex Winter about in just a minute. It's the fact that as a six-year-old or seven-year-old kid, I could watch the movie and enjoy it on that level crazy people running around the mall and doing stuff and falling down and Genghis Khan and the sporting goods store. Just the wackiness of it. Trash can. Remember a trash can. Trash can? What are you talking about? Yeah, get this thing off me, kid. Sorry, Dad. But there was also that hint, and I think this is why kids gravitate towards movies like Bill and Ted, even if they're skew a little older, that there was another level there that I didn't quite get, but that I wanted to know about. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! The things that you're, you're not quite old enough to know exactly what it is, but you know it's supposed to be funny, and you want to figure out what it is that's funny about it. So it works on that level for kids, both as just a funny movie and this sort of portal into getting older and this other level of humor that you're going to understand someday. 
Then as a teenager, obviously, it's like a peer thing. Either you're Bill and Ted, or you know Bill and Ted, or you want to be like Bill and Ted. I certainly knew a few people that were like Bill and Ted in high school growing up, and you you bond around that. It becomes a shared experience, especially when you grow up with it as a kid. You get older, you start getting those jokes that you didn't get when you were younger, and your love for that movie is even further enhanced. You ditched Napoleon? Deacon, do you realize you have stranded one of Europe's greatest leaders in San Dimas? He was a dick. And then as I've gotten older, I find that I really appreciate the the more subtle jokes because there are there is some pretty high-minded stuff going on in there amidst all of the dumber humor. And that's why I think that critics were really, a lot of them, unfair to this movie by writing it off as just a dumb teenage comedy. Because when you have things like the Sigmund Freud jokes... I want to know why you claim to be Sigmund Freud. How do you claim I'm not Sigmund Freud? Why do you keep asking me these questions? Tell me about your mother. Underneath this veneer of idiocy, there is actually some really smart stuff going on. As a matter of fact, my favorite joke in the whole movie is actually one of the ones that they don't sell very much, which is when early in the film, Bill and Ted are talking to their teacher, and it's very obvious that they're just cheating by reading the board behind him. Thanks to great leaders such as Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc, and Socratic Method, the world is full of history. That joke makes me laugh every time, and I also think as a fan of time travel movies that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure actually has one of the best and I think probably most realistic realistic theories on how time travel would actually work because the movie's not really about changing anything. It's about keeping time on the timeline where it needs to be. I'm telling you this place is great. But it almost wasn't. You see, 700 years ago, the two great ones ran into a few problems. So now I have to travel back in time to help them out. And the idea of them realizing that they can't change something right now, but if they do it in the future, if they set the trash can to fall after they do these things, they're not changing anything. They're just making sure that things happen like they need to. After the report, we can't forget to do this, otherwise it won't happen. But it did happen. Hey, it was me who stole my dad's keys. Yes, it's a little more complicated, but in a way, I think it's more airtight and realistic, certainly than a lot of the other time travel theories. And I know how weird it sounds to be talking about how realistic the time travel is in a movie that sees a couple of teenagers from the late 20th century kidnap President Abraham Lincoln so he can give a high school speech where he says, Party on, dudes! But in a weird way, it is. So I think that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is actually a lot smarter than certainly the critics of the day gave it credit for. And going into the sequel, which we'll talk about at a different time, I think you'll see even more layers, and I think it goes even deeper, and it's one reason why I like Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey a lot. As a matter of fact, a lot of people might say, well, you've got them both on one disc, why would you not just do both movies? It's because I think Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is a really interesting movie on its own because it's not just a repeat of the original film. It is a reinvention of itself in a weird way. So I actually want to give Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey its own episode, which is why I'm not doing it here today. Uh, but I think it just goes on to deliver and show just how high-minded a lot of the writing in the first film was and is today. 
Speaking of this Blu-ray disc, because this is a show somewhat about physical media, uh, this is a good example of, it really it's kind of a PSA for the collectors out there because this is, I think, the third version of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure I've owned, probably the fourth, because I'm sure there's a VHS somewhere back there along the line, but I had it on DVD. I had the film itself on Blu-ray, but for a while, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey was actually kind of difficult to find in an HD format, and so I found this disc which combines both films on it. And it's not one of the things where it's two discs. It's, it's actually just one disc. The, the, it has both movies on it. But I think because you have to make room for both movies on one disc, there's no special features whatsoever on this disc. It's literally just the two movies and that's it. And I know for a fact that both of my previous versions on DVD and the Blu-ray I had previously did have special features. And there have been other editions that have come out subsequent to me getting this. And I know they do have special features, but I, I can only justify buying the same movie so many times. There's a, there's a point at which you just have to say, okay, is, is it really worth the extra expense? Uh, but a little collector's tip, make sure you're keeping the optimal version. And even if you have to have two copies of the movie sitting around, make sure you got the special features because I really do wish I had more on this disc about the movie instead of just the movie itself, which is great, don't get me wrong, uh, but I always want to know more. Now that we've gotten the disc spec part of the show out of the way, I want to bring on my guest without further ado. He plays Bill S. Preston Esquire in both of the films on this disc, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. He reprised the role this year in the third film of the franchise, Bill and Ted Face the Music. He is also a prolific actor, a prolific director, a prolific producer, a man of many talents. It was amazing to get to talk to Alex Winter about the film we're talking about today, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and its legacy moving forward. Let's go to that conversation right now. I am super excited to welcome this guest to the show. He is the star of all three movies in the Bill and Ted franchise, but he is also a writer. He's also a producer. He's also a director. He's a man of many talents. Alex Winter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be here. I was mentioning that uh, you know this show is about covering my movies, my movie collection, and, and movies mean different things to different people. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is a movie that I saw at a very young age, and it's one that I think I have connected to throughout my life because it works on so many different levels. When I was younger and I saw it, it's just a fun adventure. They're running around the mall. It's fun to watch. Yeah. When you get older, when you're in your teenage years, about the same age of the character, you relate it to it on a more of a Bill and Ted level. But I think the level that a lot of people might not give it credit for is it also is a very, in a lot of ways, subtle comedy. Um, there's these zingers in there. There's Sigmund Freud jokes. Like it, it works on a higher level as well. When you were first reading it and, 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 and read the script for the film, like, did you see all those levels? Was that something that you also noticed and connected to with the movie? Uh, I think what I responded to was, you know, at the age that I auditioned for that, uh, the types of scripts you would get tended to be very similar. There were these sort of teen sex comedies, John Hughes knockoff kind of things. And uh, I think I responded to the physicality of these guys and the extremely ornate nature of the language, which was not common at all for um, 14 movies. And uh, they were, they were really fun words to say. I mean, they were very funny. Um, the script was, was very funny, but uh, from an acting standpoint, they were just, it, they were really fun to, to be these guys. And uh so I think I responded to that 
um, pretty immediately as it, as even in the early days of audition, like, oh, this is, this is uncommon. This is not what I'm used to seeing. And I think Keanu felt the same way when we first started auditioning, that it was just much more physical and, and more theatrical in a way. It's, it's, you know, watching the movie and really watching all three movies. When you're watching them, you kind of take, you know, what you're seeing and, oh, it's Napoleon going down a water slide. Oh, they go to hell and they meet death. You know, oh, you know, reality is, is crumbling in on itself. But when you're reading it, I imagine it's a little more different. How much trust do you put in the filmmakers when you're, when, you know, when you're reading these scripts? And it's like, you know, I, what I love about these movies is they go, they don't play it safe. Um, there's just, there's crazy stuff in every single one of those movies. Is it a case of just like, I love this material and I'm just going to trust the execution here uh, because this is some, you know, this is some pretty crazy stuff, but in a good way. Well, I mean, we're pretty involved um, in the productions and, uh, you know, certainly by the second and the third, we were very, very involved. Um, uh, but by the same token, it's really important to us to uh, let the director do their job and at a certain point to get out of the way and just do our job, you know, play these guys and let the director make the film. So uh, with each film, the, the director being able to, uh, to control the tone, the tone of these movies is very specific and it can easily go very, very wrong. Uh, so that's always been very important. I mean, it really started with Steve Herrick who directed the first movie. Um, and I would say really kind of, um, helped create the tone of what Bill and Ted is in, in the first place and had this unbelievable lock on on the tone and gave us a playground to work in that we felt extremely comfortable in and, and we trusted him implicitly not to let us make asses of ourselves and or we did in the service of the movie so it was okay but um, in each case that's been that's been uh, really vital and in the in the third one uh, we actually pursued Dean Pariso. We were huge fans of Galaxy Quest and what he had done with that movie, the way he had managed to, to create a very specific tone out of incredibly disparate parts. Uh, that's very similar to what we do. And, uh, and especially in the third one, there's, there's a lot of, of disparate parts. I love how each movie grows with its characters. So the first movie you meet them, the second movie is kind of about them being them. And then with, with Bill and Ted face the music, you have them, you know, about, you know, having the next generation below them and, and this destiny that's landed on their shoulders. But from the very beginning, do you think that part of the reason why it connected with so many people was that obviously you and Keanu were in your twenties, you had two writers with Ed and Chris who were also in their twenties. You had a director's in his twenties. It wasn't this thing with Hollywood of like, 40 year old people making movies for 16 year olds, you know, it was, it was a fairly young core, you know, was there a connection there that, that do you think helped that, that, you know, the audiences didn't think that they were being pandered to. It's like, Oh no, we get it. We're in on the joke. Yeah. I, I don't think that that was terribly conscious. Um, I think in retrospect, that is, is definitely true. I think that there's a, a, a sincerity to them. There is a, the films are very much about friendship um, and the kind of imaginative worlds and the loyalty uh, and the, the trials and tribulations that one goes through with someone else. Uh, and the film was written by two very close friends uh, and it was happened to be acted by two very close friends and it was made by a, a coterie of young people. Uh, so there was a very, you know, fraternal, easy atmosphere on honestly on all three movies. But again, with Steve Herrick on the first one, um, it was more like your older brother than like your dad who was directing you. 
you know, and we believed in him and he was very good at directing, but it was very fraternal and we just laughed our asses off all the time. And, and there was an easygoing nature to it. There was also a kind of a lack of pressure uh, from the standpoint that film was very small. It was not a big budget movie. It was made for an independent. It wasn't like we had uh, high expectations. I would say we had zero expectations. There was nobody watching us and expecting anything from us whatsoever. We did, literally did not exist. So we just kind of went off and made this crazy ass movie and just hope people like it. Um, and that's we've tried to maintain that spirit with with all three of them. And and uh, but now I think we're a little more conscious of the fact that that we like to maintain the sincerity of them. And we've dug more and the writers have dug more into the themes of friendship and what it means. And and certainly this movie gets into a lot of different iterations of our friendship, our relationship with our wives, their relationship, our relationship with our daughters, their relationship. So it gets into all kinds of little micro stories around this theme. I was rewatching Excellent Adventure last night and it comes to the, you know, the first, really the first scene that introduces you and Keanu and you're in, you're, you're in the garage and you've got the camera and you're filming yourselves playing music. And I'm just thinking, you know, I mean, the movie was made, you know, 30 years ago, but that is, that's essentially what people are still doing. I mean, you, you substitute that big chunky VHS camera for a, for a phone and you still have kids in their garage, filming themselves, you know, uploading it to YouTube. Um, yep. it, there's a timeless quality to that. And I think, again, it, it touches into that authenticity, which is that, that you know, that sort of behavior is is timeless. The, 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 the era may change, the, the venue may change, but it, it does still, you know, it's, it's, they want to be famous, whether it's Wild Stallions uh, musically or on YouTube now. Yeah, and I think that the you know the uh, the sort of notion of of you know people in kind of wherever they are in the world wanting to make their mark somehow and and wanting to find a way into the world and maybe feel like outsiders even within their school or within sort of the 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 greater world. I think that's a big that was certainly a big thing for any generation. Uh, I think now with social media, it's taken on a whole other life. You know, kids want to be Instagram stars and they just think, well, if I get enough followers on Instagram, then I've penetrated some world that I, that is not my world. I've elevated myself or something. And, and uh, you know, the fun thing about the Bill and Ted movies is at the end of the day, they're, they're very, actually very grounded guys who lead very simple lives and uh, go on these extremely grandiose adventures, but they themselves are really sort of retain the simplicity. Um, and that's gotten bigger and bigger intentionally with every film. The stakes get bigger and the worlds get bigger. And yet we, at the end of the day, are still just these two guys from the Inland Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I This is something I've always wanted to ask um, because this isn't something that happens to a lot of people, but you know, you mentioned with the first movie, it was a, it was a smaller movie. It was kind of made off, you know, and then it, it blows up and it's huge. And, and it becomes kind of an industry. So this movie that you made, you know, kind of off on your own, all of a sudden it is not only do you have sequels, but it's a, it's a serial. It's an action figure. It's a Saturday morning TV show. I actually still have this. Is, I didn't buy this. Like I, this is from when I was young. It's a, it's a comic book. Like it's, it's everything. Um, and, and so, you know, this little project now is everywhere. 
Uh, is there a point at which it just kind of comes back around to it's just white noise or it, does it stay weird to be like, oh, wow, I'm in Toy Stories. I'm on, I'm on TV, you know, at a point at some point, it's not even you, I guess. It's, it's just the character. In a way, it's never you. Um, you know, there were huge changes to my life when Bill and Ted One came out because it was so pervasive everywhere in the world. I, I had started acting as a child, um, and so I was not new to being recognized. I'd been, I co-starred on Broadway through my childhood, so I was doing TV interviews, and I was known at school as that kid on Broadway, and all of that kind of weird stuff that you have to acclimate to when you're a child, a working child actor. Um, and that's really, it just, it's sort of that on a bigger scale. Uh, so the, the coping mechanisms that you have for that on a smaller scale are the same at a bigger scale, other than people are like running up to you all the time, wherever you go, like there's never a pause. Um, and I got used to that within the first six months of Bill and Ted one, and that's never changed for the rest of my life. So now I'm just, I don't even think about it. And, you know, I've said this before, but it really is true. Thank God. Uh, you know, Bill and Ted fans tend to be very sweet. Like it's a sweet movie. So, uh, people are coming up to you. They usually have a smile on their face. They're usually happy to see you. Uh, they're usually very nice and polite. And uh, so it's not really invasive. The other stuff, the kind of cultural stuff, the the TV show, the the cereal box, the con, like I I like as a I'm so divorced for me as a person. I have my own life and like and it goes for everybody that I don't connect with that at all. Other than uh, a, I'm grateful for it, and b. As a creative person, I dig it. Like, I'd like all the art people make. It's really cool. And um, some of those people are professional uh, and they'll make their own Bill and Ted posters. You know, there's a few artists who I like tremendously who have made incredible aftermarket Bill and Ted art. Um, and now with the third movie, people are making art all over the world and they're sending it to us. And it's incredible. Like, it's really beautiful. And that was why Ed and Chris wrote and I don't want to spoil the movie, but they wrote this sort of end title sequence into the film that allowed people to do that and be in the film because we get so much of that all the time. And it's inspiring to us because, you know, we don't sit there and go, oh, ha, ha, we're the empire of Bill. You know, we're not we're not the Marvel universe. Like, you know, these movies have never made any of us rich. We don't they're not cash grabs. We do them because we love them and they're hard as hell. Um, and then if you know people like them, we make more or we do more stuff with it. But the sort of cultural response to it has been really, really beautiful, frankly. Well, I will say I did notice when I was looking at this comic close, more closely, it, it was published by Marvel. So I think, yeah. I think so yeah, they're I think, making money. See, they, they managed to figure it out. They, they, they know they how could to pull you guys in. Maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll call my lawyer and then they'll laugh at me, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you talk about the authenticity of the movie and that's really, uh, that's what I think is actually, you, you feel more as it goes on you know, especially in this third one, um, you feel the love for these for these characters. And obviously your relationship on screen as Bill and Ted is rooted in a friendship that you and Keanu have. <laughs> I, I'm assuming that's probably largely what kept both of you on board over the years as the third movie was coming together and then not coming together and happening and, you know, not happening. I mean, was it really just because you two had such a great, bond together that you know you wanted to revisit that yes and no um you know we're close enough that we see each other regardless um and we have a very different relationship because we're not these i mean obviously we're not these characters right so our friendship has got very little to do with the on-screen friendship in terms of the way the dynamics of it but um but there was a reunion aspect of it that we liked. but it wasn't just us it was it was chris and ed 
it was working together with them again. It was working with Scott Krupp, our producer who produced the first two movies. It was being able to bring back William Sadler, bring back Hal Landon, bring back Amy Stock, who played Missy. There are people behind the camera who worked on the first two that are very close friends of all of ours that we were very much looking forward to working with again. So I think there was a, it wasn't so much, I mean, look, on the, in the first week we did turn to each other and we're like, it is really, really fun to perform <laughs> together again. Like it, it was genuinely is really fun to act with him and I love it uh, to death. It's super fun. And it is like having a band you just fall back into like finishing each other's sentences and moves. And I know exactly what he's going to do next. And that stuff is great. But um, for us, I think what kept us going was that we believed in the idea that Chris and Ed came up with very wholeheartedly. And we liked the idea of bringing the whole band back together, all these people um, and, and revisiting that world with the whole gang, basically. Was there a point when you're on set in the first couple films when, you know, you worked with Joel Schumacher, you worked, you know, you had a very career leading up to to when you decided to or when you started directing. Was there a point where was that something you always wanted to do? Or was there a point where you're on set kind of watching the activity going like, I want to do that. I, I, I want to try that. Uh, no, I, I as, as a young person, a very I mean, I started acting professionally at nine, 10 years old. Um, and even then I wanted to go to college for film. Uh, I was really specific about that for some reason. And uh, I always I started making short, like you said, it would have been an iPhone, but in my day it was an eight mil camera and I had a little acting troupe um, and we made movies all the time. And I had, you know, reel to reel as my basement and I was cutting my own films. And I was 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, I was a film fanatic at a very young age. And uh, so, but I never really wanted to just do one or the other. I kind of wanted to do everything. Um, there was just a point, I think, in my mid to late 20s where I'd been acting professionally for so long, not without a break. I, I just needed a break. And I, it was less, I'm just going to go direct and write, and more, I need to not be in front of the camera for a little while. I need to not have that pressure on me. Um, and it was actually, I mean, that was the stock I just made for HBO on children and show business. That was, it turns out, uh, a very common thing for a child actor to confront at a certain point in their early adulthood of just like, just having been professional for so long that you need normal life. You just need to live in the real world like a regular person. So that was really more what drove me leaving professional acting at that age. Um, I always was shooting, always. I was shooting when I was on Broadway. I was shooting when I was doing the Bill and Ted movies. I was already making commercials and music videos and all kinds of stuff as a director. So I've kind of always done all of that. So last question before I let you go. You know, Bill and Ted is about, it's really is about the future from the very beginning. And I think the one thing, you know, some things have stayed the same, but one thing that has changed, it's always been about this unifying force of this thing that brings people together in the future. And I think what's different with this film versus the first two is, as you mentioned, you now get this swell of fan art and people sharing their thoughts and people, you know, sharing their love. It's much easier because it's not like, it's not writing a fan letter and putting a stamp on it and mailing it, you know, or, or people just happening to find you um, mm -hmm. out in the real world. Um, it, it, does that feel different? Does it feel a little bit more like you can you can get in real time what this means to people because people can have so many other venues to share their love for this? Because 
I'm sure there are new fans. There's fans like me that have grown up literally with these movies. Um, you know, how does that feel now as opposed to back in 1988? Yeah, I, look, I, you know, there are terrible things about the internet and there are terrible things about social media, obviously. Um, but it is no secret that I've been a big proponent of the internet um, and computers most of my adult life. And I think social uh, sort of web-based social groups and global groups are incredibly effective. And I mean, look, in the age of COVID, we're surviving on Zoom and, and, um, and thank God for, you know, the, the Sean Fannings who created things back in the day that now are kind of the, the under the hood of every technology we use all the time. And they've, you know, and Fanning's vision was, was to, he lived in isolation. He was very poor and came from a very fractured family and he wanted to be connected to people around the world and he created a way to do that. And, you know, now we have the Apple store. So um, I very much enjoy um, the ability to communicate directly with people around the world and for their ability to, to communicate with me, whether it's as an actor, a filmmaker, a citizen interested in politics, whatever it is, um, I like it tremendously. Um, I it's I find it comfortable. I don't find it invasive. I can turn it off if I want. No one's forcing me to be on it. Um, so releasing Bill and Ted largely via the internet during the age of COVID and becoming kind of a public figure again, largely via social media, it has been fantastic, I have to say. And we're really lucky. Like we really didn't want to punt this movie down the road another year and a half. And we were able to release it home vid uh, as well as theaters. Our campaign has largely been over the internet. We've done incredibly well. We're really, really happy with the response. And I've been, you know, getting art and connecting with fans and, you know, directly on a daily basis. It's been great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. Bill and Ted Face the Music is available here in North America right now. Uh, PVOD uh, and select theaters. It's also rolling out uh, internationally. I know you've been running the publicity gauntlet uh, for a while now. So thanks so much for stopping yeah. in. And I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Great, man. Thanks so much. It was good to, good to be here. here. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Alex Winter for coming on the show. As I mentioned before, it is truly excellent to have a guest like him on the show, particularly on episode two, uh, to talk about this movie. Uh, so many insights to be gained from his experiences working on the film. And as I mentioned, you can catch Bill and Ted Face the Music right now on Video On Demand and also in select theaters if there's one open near you that's playing the film. Go check it out there. And that's all I've got for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You can mark another one off the list. There's a lot more to go, uh, but the one that I'm really excited to come back to is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, one of my favorite comedy sequels of all time. Thank you so much for watching. Don't forget to check out the description below if you want to find that limited edition goat merchandise. Get it while you can because it's not going to be there forever. And once again, if you haven't rated us and reviewed us over on Apple, please do so as we help grow the show. I will be back next week with another one of my favorite movies, a true modern classic, and another special guest that I can't wait to talk to and introduce you to as well. I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. I'm excited to break down that movie with you, but for now, it's time to go back on the shelf, and I'll see you next time.